Hi, I'm Dee Sterling. I'm a lover of language and languages. I'm a storyteller. I'm also a businesswoman and the co-founder of Center for Entrepreneurs. Welcome to my podcast, Double Espresso with Dee. Over coffee, a very strong one in my case, I will get curious with my guests about their journeys in life and business and how they practice living courageous, creative and interesting lives. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Double Espresso with Dee. I am so beyond happy today to welcome someone whom I love, respect and adore and who is a dear friend, the legend who is Shan Sutherland. Shan, how are you? I'm so well. Lovely to see you. And just so everybody knows, you are Diamond D to me. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. That goes straight to my heart. So listen, Shan, not that it's absolutely necessary, but I am going to give a very reductionist version of your incredible background. And then we're going to dive deep in because we have much ground to cover today. So first up, serial entrepreneur, across many disciplines and sectors, from advertising, Michelin-starred restaurants, film production. I mean, if I had known you then, I could have had a minor role in one of your films. But anyway, (laughs) there may be another opportunity. (laughs) One of my lifelong ambitions, brand creation agencies, and obviously skincare, right? And you've always focused on building brands with passion, which are positive, responsible, engaging, and where you can really connect with the consumer, with, with the buyer, with the person who is relating to that brand. So then you and some of your friends co-founded Mamma Mia, which was born out of a need and which was essentially the first premium pregnancy skincare brand. And over time, Mio evolved. And that was essentially skin fitness for active women, something that wasn't... Again, totally selfish need. Right. But born out of a need, like all great Mm. entrepreneurial ideas and nothing in the market, despite the density of that market. So fast forward, it becomes a global brand, not by itself. I remember the years of you tearing around the globe with the girls. And after a successful exit uh, and sale to the Hut Group, you didn't go and lie on a beach for two years. You didn't write your memoirs, you turned your incredible vital energy and attention with razor sharp focus to the problem, the titanic problem of plastic. So you and your incredible co-founder, whom we love, launched A Plastic Planet, which has had and has as its focus to turn off the plastic tap. So just a couple of comments on that. And then obviously, I'd love to hear from you on all You work with governments, you are driving legislative change, um, you're working with major industry leaders in their businesses and also at a more macro level to change the status quo in countries, in sectors across the world. You are connecting with these people in all the arenas that count. I know you spoke at Davos recently. Um, When you kicked off with a plastic-free aisle, you won International Campaign of the Year. Oh, and of course, by the by, Prior to all of this, you are multi-award winner, entrepreneur of the year, inventor of the year, female marketer of the year, and so forth. I could go on, but it would take too long, I think, today. Anyway. Um, I kind of hate the- myself. I'm listening to this thinking, I sound really nauseating. No, you're not. <laughs> if anybody's still listening, if anyone's still listening, <laughs> trust me, it's going to get better. It's going to get more real. It's going to be raw. <laughs> it is. We're going to hear everything all about it. Anyway, with Plastic Planet, you've been doing so much. You know, you've launched a number of, um, uh, you've launched the Plastic Free Trust Mark for brands. I think you've got over a thousand brands signed up to that. The industry commitment mark, um, 
working toward plastic-free for industries and corporates. You're also a founding partner in the Plastic Health Coalition, which sounds absolutely incredible, bringing together leading scientists and doctors and really, you know, once and for all proving the kind of harm of plastic toxicity in the human body and in our health. So, Sean, let's start at the beginning. You as an entrepreneur, where did that start? Well, Dee, let me think. It's funny because actually in my upbringing, I was the first entrepreneur in the family. You know, I had a very... I guess, middle-class, ordinary, suburban upbringing. My father was a GP. My mother was a teacher. I'm one of four, four children. So I've got three brothers. My two older brothers are much more academic than me. And then I came along and I was really, if I'm honest, a little bit the black sheep of the family. Really? Huge kind of, yeah, huge academic (laughs) expectations of me. And then I hit, you know, and everything was going swimmingly. And I was going to, you know, I was either going to be a doctor or I was going to be a journalist or something like that. And then, Me too, actually, then, the doctor. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. never happened. Uh, and then you thought, oh, <laughs> yeah, another seven years of education, maybe not. But no, for me, actually, all of that was whipped from under my feet because I then discovered drinking and boys and music aged 15. Oh my and that God. was my first kind of downfall because I went from, you know, having all these huge expectations of where I was going to go to university to realizing, actually, I was failing the very simple things of my GCSEs. Completely right. my fault, completely lack of application. So there is no one else to blame but me. Right. And I always say to my sons now that much as, of course, I have no regrets. And of course, everything that happened, that I, I started work much earlier than perhaps I, I would have done so work at, at 17 do I regret any of that now? Not at all. Did no. I make my path harder? Yes, I did. Right. So, you know, my message to them is always when they were sitting there at exams and they'd say, hey, but mum, you know, you didn't do so bad. Said, Listen, I, I really made it a rocky road for myself. Right. And if you get a great education and you apply yourself in those years, you definitely make life easy. It's a step up, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, it, it is. It's a springboard, undeniably. Yeah. Yeah. So, but from my own lack of effort, I didn't have that springboard. And so I started in, you know, very, very lowly kind of positions and then gradually worked my my way up in that way. What was the first job that you had? My first job ever was working in a typing pool for a computer company that was next door to a food additive and a fish food plant that smelled so bad I can't tell you and <laughs> and I was I was literally just typing stuff and drawing doing funny little drawings of connecting computers by these things called modems and multiplexes nobody oh had ever God. heard of those things before how long did that last that lasted two years and then I got my first job in advertising and moved to London moved up to right. London and and that was really the beginning for me I guess of tapping into perhaps feeling that I could, I could do more that I could achieve more and having a little bit more self-belief. God knows where it all came from. Apart from the fact that I absolutely had very supportive parents. And my mum particularly, who um, was quite an amazing woman, was actually a nun. Um, so like she, my aunt, you know, she's, like my aunt that I always tell you yes, about, my aunt who then became an entrepreneur. Oh my God, these former nuns, incredible. Yeah, really incredible. So I always, you know, like the sound of music was my childhood. <gasps> and so that, that film always, you know, tapped something for me. Um, but she was, and is the most incredible woman, so giving, so caring, um, so supportive. And she basically told us four kids, you could do anything. And we are there for you. Same. And we love oh my you throughout. God. Yeah. yeah. 
And what an incredible start that is. So it wasn't perhaps an academic start, but it was an incredibly good emotional start for me that I think means that you are you have a level of self-esteem that that I think is is something that I I never take for granted. And that isn't self-esteem in a in a vain way, but it's just um you have something instilled in you early on that you can do anything. That you are the only thing that gets in your own way. Absolutely. And I think that's right. And total encouragement, total encouragement, whatever path you choose. And of course, all of us say to our kids, we don't care who you are. We don't care what you do, so long as you are happy. And we all say that, but we'd quite like them to go into something professional. And we quite like them to, to achieve at school and all the rest of it. But to have parents who I feel absolutely did hold me in such an amazing way to give Incredible. me that emotional springboard, I will never, I'll never undervalue. And that's the one thing you want to be as a parent, isn't it? You want to. It totally is. It totally is. And you know, it's about everyone. You know, as we talk about it, everyone being themselves. You know, I sometimes say to my children, "Be an eagle." You know, eagles fly solo until they find interesting people to fly with, and people that they can relate to and grow with, and have lovely times with, and happy times, and all rise together as such. And I think that it's one thing feeling that, but it's another taking the leap. And for you, at what point in your very early career did you just go, I'm going to go and give that a go because I've got nothing to lose? Because that's always been your attitude, right? It it kind of has. And, you know, what's the worst thing that can happen Mm. is I can fail. And the good news is that you do fail and then you realize it was never quite that bad. So every, all those cliches, if you don't learn by your successes, your successes just make you think you are the big I am. Mm. You learn from your failures. And they are the things, and they make you, they just make you a more rounded, empathetic, nicer person. I think people who have had nothing but success all the way down the path are quite difficult to be, to be with. And to be connected to other people, right? Yeah. So failure is incredibly important and we almost need to rebrand it. You know, you're the branding queen. What would you rebrand failure as? I think I call it growth. You know, oh, just, I've oh never thought of that before, but actually failure, failure just sounds such an awful word. It's so negative. We're so fearful of failure, right. particularly, I think, in the UK. There is a better attitude in some ways in the, in the US, yeah. albeit it's not perfect, but you definitely feel that people love you for trying. And there is a little bit of, of schadenfreude in the UK that we need to be aware of. We need to applaud pe- people for trying. And if they fail, then you applaud them for having grown into that failure and then use that as another springboard for something. Totally. And just giving it a go. Because one of the things that I think about quite a lot at the moment, and therefore I'm trying to do more, is, you know, it's like the 20 minutes of doing as opposed to the five days of thinking. Obviously, you can't just do, you know, uh, a sort of, uh, as long as it's good enough, right? You know, you know, we know this. As long as it's good enough, get it out across the line. It's, it's, It's being too long in the editing room doesn't help because you just get caught up and turning in circles and you miss the timing, which I think is very, very important, particularly when you're launching things. What was the first business you launched? In those early years, were there uh, some notable, you know, lows or failures or things that you think when you look back, you go, oh my God, that was so amazing because I learned so much about myself. Well, interestingly, my first business, which God knows why I decided leaving advertising that I wanted to set up my first business. And then I thought I'm going to make that first business a restaurant. God knows why. I had zero experience in a restaurant. 
I, you know, I would go to in the in the heady days of the advertising eighties. I would go places like Lascago, and I would sit there thinking, "What a nice thing to do! Create an environment that people can come and have wonderful experiences." And it was also at the time where new British cuisine was really on the up. Absolutely, in a very, very elitist, very snobbish way. You know, oh my God, you've ordered a gin and tonic, uh, you know, as an aperitif, then you'll have to leave my restaurant. It was those days, which sounds incredible now, um, but 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 there was a huge a snobbery and I thought wouldn't it be wonderful to create a fantastic restaurant where everybody felt comfortable where you celebrated those moments and you asked your fiance to to marry you and all of those things but in absolute comfort um, of, of realizing you know that there were no social faux pas that you could make and um, so that was really the idea of the restaurant that we wanted to create so I left advertising I actually went to see the, the um, Nick Lander, who was running Lascargo mm. at the time, with his wife Jancis Robinson, um, who many people will still know from the, the from of the course, the restaurant they're wonderful, and, and, the, yes. and the wine critics, and and they they were running Lascargo with Martin Land, the chef. And Nick said to me, I said, "Yeah, I'm thinking of doing this. I think I want to open a restaurant." He said, "Come and work here. I'll put you off." And <laughs> And somehow it didn't. I went and worked at Lascargo. I went I went back to the agency at the same time freelancing because obviously I had to earn a certain amount of money. Worked, you know, did 11 shifts a week at Lascargo for a year and got involved in a, a small post-production company helping them as well. So I was basically doing three jobs for a year, which for me was a brilliant thing to do because I learned so much. And at that same time, pulling the team together to, mm. to open the restaurant. And when we opened the doors of the restaurant, we were a very young team. My restaurant manager was, you know, just 21, 22. I was 25, 26. And, uh, and our chef was in the middle there. So very young team. In our first year, we won a Michelin star. We were newcomer of the year. Oh, my God. How did you do like that? Incredible. Uh, well, it, now I look at it and just think, amazing, yeah. but also the kiss of death. And in everything I've ever done, the restaurant business is the most mercurial. Right. You either lock that door up at 2 a.m. thinking, I have got the best job in the world. I have just been walking around those restaurant tables and people are having the most wonderful time. And I cannot believe that we do this. And what a, you know, what a blessing. Or you lock that door thinking, please, God, burn it down overnight. I never want to come back again. This is the worst it's job brutal, in the world. Brutal, right? Brutal. Yeah. And there's rarely anything in between. So we... Ran that for for five years, very very rocky road because obviously you win a Michelin star, suddenly you've got an entirely different kind of clientele. A lot of Americans. The Gulf War happened. No Americans flying in, so yeah. any kind of restaurant uh, of our level really suffered. So it was a roller coaster, a roller coaster road in many many ways. And then of course I married my restaurant manager. And I don't know anybody who, who works with their partner, but mm. I have to say if they manage to do that, big respect, because it's a, it's a very, it's a difficult thing to do. So I decided that I would go back to my marketing roots. So I left Christian, who is absolutely through and through hospitality industry, Isn't will only just, ever do yes. that, you know, having done the Savoy five-year training course and everything else. And he's still now, you know, here we are, married 30 years now, and he is still Incredible. in that hospitality business. But I, I feel that perhaps women are more biologically adept at reinvention. And if I look back at all my different careers, you know, and having let, you know, left advertising, then left the restaurant business, and then starting a, a branding and marketing agency at that time, age 30, it just strikes me, perhaps women are better at reinvention, because 
it's part of what we have to do as women anyway, through all the different phases of our lives. And men perhaps find it more difficult. They're perhaps more dictated by what they do. It defines them in a way. Totally. And, do, yeah, and to that point, Shan, don't you think that, um, and of course, these are enormous generalizations, but I do think that often people identify with their job title. You know, it's like a calling card. And today we're in a world in which I, I mean, you know me, I'm like on to the next thing and I embrace it, right? That we can do lots of things and be fantastic at lots of things. And there are lots of schools of thought, of course, you know, where you've got to do 9 million hours of something to be an expert. And of course, Mm -hmm. you know, if you want to be an expert in many, many disciplines, you really have to put the uh, hard yards in. But I think that it's about a mindset for me that things Mm -hmm. aren't mutually exclusive. No one's ever going to question Lady Gaga, you know, singing, being a performer, being an artist, being in a Valentino campaign, starring in a Gucci movie. It all seems completely normal, you know? Yeah. And I think for us, we sometimes can hold ourselves back. I mean, I often say to some of the young people I mentor, you know, and I'm I'm the victim, I'm guilty of this as well, rather, you know, we get in our own way because we think we've got to stay mm. and do one thing. We can't shift. But I think we're in a world order, not just with the year that's been, but over the past few years, and you and I have seen this, where you can reinvent, you can recalibrate, you can move off and learn another discipline or keep working on new projects, which is incredibly life enhancing as well. Yeah, it is. It is because then it's what I've always loved about every business that I've been involved in is I love that position of naivety because I don't know why not. So, you know, starting a branding agency and obviously doing that and then through that, having our our baby making years. And as you pointed out, through absolute selfish need, creating a pregnancy skincare line and then thinking there is this niche in the market you could drive a bus into that nobody seems to have tapped into to really look after you through that nine month of pregnancy. Um, and then realizing, okay, we've never launched a skincare brand before. You know, I haven't risen through the ranks of Esther Lauder or L'Oreal. But the the benefit of not knowing why not is very empowering. Right. And I think that's probably a common thread that has run through everything that I've ever done. I don't know why not. So, you know, I didn't know that I couldn't set up a restaurant. I didn't know that I couldn't go out there and raise the money and find the building and do all the things I did age 26. It's better not to know. And we live in a world where we venerate and idolize the knowledgeable when actually if you just have a will, you will find a way. And, and common think, sense, uh, right? And be solutions and driven, right? Yeah. And the other thing is from one business to another, you don't realize until you're doing the next business, it's the same shit. It's the same common It really is, right? So, you know, the tools that you learn in one business, and obviously the restaurant business is one of the hardest ones. I think it was Egon Rone, uh, the old restaurant critic, God bless him, who said, if you can run a restaurant, you can run the country. And having done that, that for five years, yeah, <laughs> I, I totally get it, you know, and it almost needs to be a part of an apprenticeship for everyone that you have to go and work at a restaurant because it, it, the skills that you also learn of you get the grumpy table. How do you turn the table around? How do you turn the table so that they have the most incredible evening? And when they leave, they leave the way to the biggest, fattest tip and say, we'll be back. That was a wonderful, that we've had a wonderful time. And the skills that you learn with that, apart from, of course, you know, the financial skills that you learn and the fact that every single day is like a new business pitch every single day, I think are incredibly useful for everything else that you do. And in fact, my, my youngest son, you know, I totally encouraged him in, in his gap year, go and work in a restaurant because you learn so much. You learn about people. 
Well, here's the thing. And I mean, you know, I always say this and all the people I work with or have worked with over the years know I say this on a fairly regular basis, but it really is about the people. Even if you're in a tech business, you will have developers and product managers and, you know, there will be human beings as part of the team, even remotely. Mm-hmm. And it's how do you manage them? How do you keep them together? How do you bring them along? How do you lead? Whether you're leading a group of five or 50 or 5,000, right? Yeah. And you're right, probably keeping, you know, grumpy people in a restaurant happy if, if they don't like their sort of souffle or whatever it is, is, is a big one, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh my yeah, God. So when you, when you look back at that time and particularly, I guess, exiting Mio, which, you know, was such a ride and, you know, you were with it for a long time and you built it and you were all over the world. And how did that feel, you know, when you transited post-exit, what was the emotion you had around all of that? It's a great question because at the time, I thought it would be like losing my firstborn because you're, you're right, when you create a business, with myself, my three co-founders, and it becomes such a massive part of what you do. Of course, it's and like your particularly, child. Yeah, particularly with, with Mama Mio and then Mio, we had such a strong team and we had such a strong emotional connection mm. with our customers and you know you can imagine with pregnancy it's not like you're suddenly selling them an anti-wrinkle cream you're selling them a tummy rub that they are going to rub on their pregnant tummy which is a complete ritual and wonderful therapy mm-hmm. of them connecting with their unborn child so so it's it's a very it's a, and they're very vulnerable and their body confidence is probably at an all-time low because women are very used to having control over their bodies to some extent and suddenly you get pregnant and you have no control of your body nature kicks in and it does all of these things and Absolutely. and it can be quite scary in so many ways it's scary and you go on the internet and you search for some information and it's like going to Niagara Falls for a glass of water and it's all about fear. So true. Oh my God. You know, anyone who's been through pregnancy and particularly now, because obviously 15 years ago when we launched Mm. Mamma Mia, there's less out there now. It must be a flipping torrent, 25 Niagara Falls. So it it was an incredibly soul and heart built business. And of course, it's a big part of your identity. And I loved the travel. I loved the fact that we, I spent a lot of time in America and I had this great And the team workshops and, you know, that used to tell me about, oh my God. Yeah, and, and also, you know, and launching, launching Mio, which is all about skin fitness. You know, how can we tap into this market of, mm. of well-being so it isn't just about skincare? And these amazing, um, you know, sessions that we did with some of the top fitness trainers in New York, you know, our Mio Workout Wonders, all of that was a lot of fun, a lot of work. Because, again, every month you are faced with a big fat zero and a mountain of sales to climb. And then you start again on the first of every month with that oh mountain God. to climb again. Oh, my God, right. So, you know, that whole sales cycle is wearing. It's grueling, isn't it? And yeah, it is because you always get there. Somehow by crook you get there. But it's it's an exhausting roller coaster as well. But to then jump off that and we, you know, the kind of exit that we had with, with the Hut Group was probably not as planned. It happened very suddenly. Every, you know, the entire team left. And it was very much like a sticking plaster just being ripped off in one go, which at the time felt brutal. Mm. But with, you know, very soon hindsight told all of us it was the best thing because it would have been a very different business and it would have been run in a very different way, understandably, very different parent. And we built this brand on heart and emotion and connection and all the other things. And then suddenly it went on to a completely different. It's um, a new world order. It's just not the same, right? 
Exactly. And would the team who had been with me for nine years have been happy with that new world order? Probably not. So it was an abrupt exit, but it was probably very good. And then how did you adjust did, with that to that? I mean, how did you? Because there's so many emotions, and I think with transition, you know, we often think it's like I don't know changing jobs because and you're excited about the new role, but there is this mm-hmm. emotional state with transition, right? Or it's like when you finish your exams. You know, whether you're doing your A-levels or your degree or whatever you're doing, and you think it's going to be, you know, ecstatic, and fabulous, but there's this come down, right? Yeah, there uh, is. Because and, it's physical. And a vacuum. Right? Yeah. And, and there's a vacuum that is created because you've gone from being very needed and you know, just someone who's constantly busy and busyness is definitely a drug. It's yeah. definitely an addictive drug. And we're all slightly... You know, victims of that, I think, now I in a very, very hyper busy lifestyle with, um, you know, ding, ding, ding of the inbox. Um, so you go from that to suddenly you have to make things happen out of nothing mm-hmm. again. And that is tricky. But it was also the the time where I had been, as we were exiting, I'd been asked to consult the board of the Hong Kong Foundation the Plastic Oceans Foundation, who were making this first feature-length documentary on plastic in the ocean. Right. So part of me was, right, well, I'm going to do what serial entrepreneurs do, and I'm just going to spend some time thinking about my next thing. I didn't leave Mamma Mia with like, you know, a life-changing amount of money. I still have to work. Right. So I was thinking, what is that next thing going to be for me that I have to make out of nothing, which is what all entrepreneurs have to do. So I was you know, consulting for under mm-hmm. other entrepreneurial organizations and you know, what people normally do. But then I was also helping advise this Hong Kong board on the release of the film, A Plastic Ocean. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, working with the scientists and the producers and the doctors involved in that film, that was oh, my incredible, effort. right? Yeah, uh, you know, a fast track. And here was me, somebody who for 10 years was the absolute epitome of a plastic sinner who had been pumping out those unrecyclable plastic bottles and jars without even a thought. Sounds shocking to say this now, but you know, seven years is a long time in plastic awareness. And as a small entrepreneurial brand, it's still even unforgivable. But our focus was what's the competition? What's our next product? What's our next market? You know, how are we going to survive in this highly competitive world of beauty? And sustainability wasn't on the list, really. And that sounds shocking to say, but I know many brands will understand that that was the world that we lived in then. It was. It's changed so much, right? Yeah, changed very, very quickly. So I had this massive epiphany of realizing what we are doing every single day and and what we continue to do every Mm -hmm. single day to, to the oceans, to the atmosphere, to every part of our planet. And much as I was tempted to just help them release the film and then go back to the day job, I couldn't leave it alone. And it was actually at one of the screenings of A Plastic Ocean, which was at the Electric Cinema here. I in know, Nottingham incredible, Gate. incredible film. Yeah. And of course, you know, at the time, this was pre-Blue Planet 2. So David Attenborough had not spoken out. And so nobody knew. So to get people to come and see a film about plastic in the ocean i mean we had to bribe people what a downer of an evening that sounds we had to bribe people with dinner luckily david attenborough was coming to attend the screening um so he's always a draw but that was the moment where we said to the foundation so what's the takeaway for people you know what's the call to action that people are going to leave because they are about to see a film that is going to make them feel scared it's going to make them angry it's going to make them guilty and then tomorrow they're going to go shopping yeah. And they're going to fill their basket. Back to ground zero, right? Wrap. Yeah, because there is zero choice. And that was the moment that 
I was standing there with my co-founder, Frederica Magnusson, amazing Danish woman. And we looked at each other and thought, maybe we could create something that's different. Maybe we could create a different business model here, which gives people choice, which perhaps has just this simple goal, as you have mentioned, to ignite and inspire the world to turn off the plastic tap. And maybe because we're entrepreneurs, we can approach it in a different way, which right. is rather than thinking about this as a grassroots campaign where we are talking to a completely disempowered public, where I have this very simple view of, you know, we, the shopper, it shouldn't be our problem. Yes, we should buy as ethically as we can. And yes, of course, you take your own bag and, you, you know, you take your own coffee cup and all of those simple things. But ultimately, we buy what we're sold. It's industry's job to sell us something different. And it's government's job to mandate that industry sell us something different quickly. And so is there an opportunity here for us to, because business is our world, work with business? How can we ignite them, help them change, focus on solutions, and then champion them when they do the right thing? And then also, how can we lobby governments to step up to a different level of responsibility so that they do introduce new policy, taxation, new so laws what was the first to step? really change everything? What was the first step when you, the two of you decided, right, we're going to go for this? So the first step for us was thinking, wouldn't it be amazing if, you know, in a world where you can buy gluten-free, fat-free, everything free, you can't buy plastic-free? Why don't we ask supermarkets to give us a plastic-free aisle? So the first step, and the honest truth, Diamond D, I will tell you and no one else, <laughs> the, honest, the honest truth is, we just thought, wouldn't it be amazing if we could do a plastic-free aisle? And we seeded an article in The Telegraph. And we had done basically nothing other than the idea of the plastic-free aisle. And then I woke up that Saturday morning, soon after we'd started talking about, wouldn't it be amazing to have such a thing? And there on the front page of the Saturday Telegraph was supermarkets urged to create plastic-free aisles. And then the phone started ringing. And oh it God. was Radio 4 and Sky Ocean Rescue, who had just launched there. It was Sky News because Ocean Rescue had just been launched. And it was you know, the red sofa on, um, on this morning. And all of, these, all of these people were calling me up. And I remember I was down in Dorset at the time. I did my first interview on Sky News. That, and I had to you know, rejig the lights and you know, take all the candlesticks off the yeah, shelf. Hair and makeup, uh, that and, would and, be yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, and, then, you know, and then suddenly, boom, you're live. And then I was being... Oh, my God, how like, exciting, okay. though, right? Yeah. So, so what do the government think? What does the government think, Sean, about your plastic free art campaign? Uh, and <laughs> so I was just, I was basically bullshitting D. I was just saying, yes, you know, so we're, we're very keen to talk to the government about new regulation. And uh, we're keen, to, and uh, what did the superbugs say? Well, you know, we're, we're tr engaging in conversations. We weren't doing anything. But right. that was the catalyst because right. then we thought, that's it. That's it. It's out the gate. We're doing it now. Yeah. And and so we started because that was the beginning of a lot of media coverage. And it's interesting that the plastic free aisle just became really part of common parlance. And even totally. Theresa May, when she stood up, you know, a year after and delivered her environment, her 40 year environment strategy, which I'll be dead. The planet will be dead by then. But it was a start. And she talked about, we need plastic free aisles in supermarkets. Yeah. And we had a year where we did a lot of campaigning, a lot of talking to people because the media attention meant people would take the meeting, but with absolutely no intention of changing. Right. I mean, a just lip service. Lots of tax and pledges. Yeah. yeah. You know, every, there wasn't a supermarket there that, you know, didn't have some kind of pledge or promise. <laughs> the only person who actually stood up and said, 
we are doing it. We don't know how, but we're going to do it. And I give you a date and we will do it by 2025 was Richard Walker from Iceland Foods. I know. Such a hero. Yep. Such a hero and really has done an incredible job uh, as an entrepreneur and environmentalist to put also with palm oil. I mean, they were doing things way before a lot of the other grocers, weren't they? Just really on it. People have no idea what yeah. the steps they've made. And GMO, you know, you know, when his totally. father actually you know, was was running Iceland Foods, GMO, they were the first supermarket to say no to GMO. What I love, you know, it's a digression, but I really think it deserves it. Uh, what I love about Iceland Foods is it's for everybody. It's the affordable supermarket. Yeah. It's not your Waitrose. It's not your MS. It's not, you know, the organic movement. We should we will look back and think, what happened there? Why was it ever okay? Let the poor people eat the pesticides and the rich people can have the clean stuff. Right. We cannot allow plastic yeah. to go down that road. So I love that it's the affordable supermarkets that are grabbing it early. Right. And then of course we met the incredible Eric Doe's of Echo Plaza, who owns 75 supermarkets in the Netherlands, who said I want to be the first to open this plastic-free aisle. And in February 2018... I remember you all went, right? Yeah, in Amsterdam. And that day, it was really extraordinary because by then, Blue Planet 2 had happened. Everybody had the plastic guilt. And I think I did 55 media interviews in that one day. And it was CNN and Al Jazeera and Washington Post and New York Times and German TV and Chinese TV. So incredible, really. Because it was a symbol of hope. You know, it suddenly it was like, oh, okay, this is change that can happen today. We don't need a twenty-five-year plan, which you know, which nobody is yeah, ever going to be too late. empowered to make. Yeah, way too late in every way. Here is a prototype of the future, and that really has become the model for everything that we do. How can we prototype a future? Be it the refillable deodorant for Dove. And tell us a little bit about that. that. I mean, that sounds so interesting. So, yes, I mean, that is a great example of how industry can create change at scale and at speed and why industry has to be the tool for everything that we're talking about here. Because, yes, of course, there is an ethic, so, such a thing as an ethical consumer, but really, why should she or he be expected to make up for the misdemeanors, the misbehavior of the corporates? The corporates are the ones now that need to step up to a whole new level of responsibility. And organizations like Unilever are rare in the fact that, number one, they admit to the fact that they're a major part of the problem. So when we talk about things like sachets, they will say, yeah, we, we are responsible for 46 billion plastic sachets I mean, seriously, that we pump out every single year. Yeah. And that's just Unilever. So you can imagine, you know, yeah. it's, it's almost a trillion globally. But they are also very keen to be part of a solution. So we've worked with them for the last two years on this beautiful, looks like something Apple would have would have invented, stainless steel, refillable deodorant. And what I love is, just as you were saying at the beginning, they didn't wait for perfection. Is it plastic free? No. It has an element of recycled plastic in it, which for me obviously isn't perfection. But it is, it's a, a massive step forward onto a different path. And they could have put it in some little, you know, brown card tube and that would have been more sustainable. But instead, they created something that is so beautiful. It looks really beautiful, doesn't it? it? Yeah, you want it. And then it happens to be sustainable. And this is what we have to do with sustainability. We've got to take it off this forest floor, this knitted armpit, airy sandal, all about denial. We've got to position, you know, there can be nothing more luxurious, more premium, more aspirational than something that doesn't damage the planet. And I think the brands are waking up to where there is change, there is massive opportunity. 
and brands and organizations like Unilever, I think for them, the fifth biggest polluter on the planet to launch something in a target, a CVS at an affordable level in an everyday category like deodorant is very symbolic and we should champion them. Oh, 100%. So Sean, in terms of, I mean, you have gone down this road, you and Fred with A Plastic Planet. I mean, it is phenomenal what's been achieved. And I know you don't necessarily see it like that because these are all steps in a very big dilemma-solving matrix. What's in your line of vision for the next six to 12 months? Well, I would love to think, Dee, that that we're, you know, everybody working in this space, that we're having impact. Mm. But the reality is nothing is slowing down. So we need, we need serious laws. We need intergovernmental regulation. So one of the things that we're working on right now is that we are part of the Stewardship Council of a series of dialogues, which is working up to the UN sitting in February next year to create the first global treaty on plastics. We have 71 countries that are already calling for this. We know that we are united by one ocean. We're united by one atmosphere. There is not one part of our planet that is not contaminated by plastic now. From six miles deep in the Mariana Trench to the deep ice of the Antarctic, every, you know, there is plastic in this glass bottle of water that I'm drinking here. There is plastic in every lungful of air that we breathe in. There is plastic in every part of our food chain. So we need to slow down. Right now, we are forecast to be trebling the amount of plastic that we're producing by 2040 therefore trebling the amount of plastic pollution. And as I mentioned, every voluntary commitment is only ever going to reduce that right now by 7%. So we need we need a global treaty. So this is very important so that we are engaged in these dialogues, which are interesting for me because we're bringing in the stakeholders. Of, these are groups of people that would not normally sit around a table together. Yeah, totally. The ExxonMobil's, right. the American Chemistry Council, the Dow Chemicals, the Coca-Cola's, the P&G's, you know, the Unilever's, the PepsiCo's, you know, all of these people with Greenpeace, with WWF, bringing them all together within one room one virtual room to have the difficult conversations to hopefully create some kind of springboard of consensus that can accelerate the UN's work when they sit. So that's one very important thing. And then the other huge thing for us will be that we are we're developing this big resource library, which is a big global platform that connects, because if you think everything begins at a design phase, so how can we empower the creative industry? And by creative, you know, that's a very wide term for me. Anybody who makes anything, how can we incentivize them? How can we empower them to think differently at the beginning? And there is a knowledge gap between the creative industry and the plastic-free materials makers, systems changers and converters, everybody in the world of stuff. How can we join these two together. And that's what our platform on plasticfree.com will do. It will connect the creative industry with the makers of all things plastic free. It will engage them. It will empower them with rich stories of case studies, of projects, of bringing, you know, because if you said to a designer, algae, incredible, regenerative, amazing material, incredible qualities, no designer would know how to use algae. But if you combine algae with a paper, with a this, with a that, then what have you got? You've got something that could potentially replace the sachet. And that is the direction of travel, right? And it's about getting people, because people don't even know. I think even a lot of consumers, they think that recycling is the answer. We know recycling, sadly, is not the answer for all sorts of reasons we don't need to go into here, right? Mm. I think, you know... I don't want to burst everybody's recycling bubble. No, well, so... so, so, Plastic is not the answer. 
It's so not the answer, right? But Shan, mm-hmm. tell me, I'd love you to talk a little bit about, um, you know, to people who are looking to build businesses. And today we really do talk about purpose in building businesses, be it, you know, for profit or, uh, you know, social enterprises, but people talk about coming with heart, coming with purpose, things that you've been doing your whole life, frankly. It's just this sort of lexicon is very much part of the norm today. What would you say mm-hmm. to people who want to go about building something? What are the, like the three top tips that you would give them, whether it's campaign led? Because I do think in some businesses, you almost need to have a campaign, don't you? Whether it be on social media or other. So it may not mm-hmm. be a campaign to you know, save the planet, but it could be a campaign to get your business out there, right? And create an mm-hmm. oceanic swell, excuse the pun, to get things moving. What advice would you give to people thinking about combining all that and launching a venture or growing exponentially a, an early stage business? When I started Mama Mia, I used to always talk about the fact that what you need to find is not a trend, but a need. And obviously with pregnancy, we found a genuine need, not just a, oh, latest, you know, newest, funkiest ingredient or something that we can make you feel insecure about and then sell you a skincare product to fix it. We found a genuine need. And I think that is always the goal for an entrepreneur is you find a pain point that you can then fix or you find a need that you can then answer. And I think to everything, to build on what you were just saying, now it's gone even further than that. And I've always believed, you know, I I don't want to be in the business of selling stuff. I want to sell stuff that has purpose in some way, be it creating a restaurant that makes people feel safe and comfortable and have a wonderful experience or selling a skincare brand that had that incredible emotional connection with our customers to what we're doing now at A Plastic Planet. And that is... As much as finding a need now, it's finding a movement. Mm. So if you can find a movement, then you can build a community. Mm. And a movement in its broader sense, it's a direction of travel. Mm. And with movements, you can then very easily build community because it's very hard now to build a community around a product that doesn't have any meaning or purpose in our lives. Mm. That isn't the way that we think anymore. We buy very emotionally still. So you tap into a movement or you create your own movement and then you can build a community. And that community can, of course, be something that is very social media driven or it can be a digital uh, community or it can be a, a physical community. And then you can pop a brand in there. It's almost that simple. If you think of it that way, that it goes movement, community, you know, definitely some kind of digital content because that's how you can scale quickly now. And then it's about brand. And if you think of it in that sequence rather than product first, and this is where I think people so interesting. go wrong. I meet people all the time who say, I have got the best product in the world. And I said, well, that's incredible. Of course, that's great. But do you really think that the world is going to beat a path to your door? How are they going to know about you? What else are you doing? How are you answering the need that is out there? And I think there is in, in out there right now, there's some very raw needs yeah. of mental health and loneliness and people feeling you know, disempowered. And there are so many things out there that I think it's there's a lot of opportunity. Where there is change, there is always opportunity. 100%. Right now, this has got to be the best time to be an entrepreneur. And I, because entrepreneurs are not only are they the, in the UK the biggest employers, um, you know, the, the SMEs are, are employ way more people in the UK than the big businesses. There's always a massive focus on big industry, but actually the SMEs are the ones. And I think there's going to be a massive growth coming through this pandemic. I think people are thinking in a very different way. I hope they buy in a very different way too. 
Oh, me too. And I think uh, to your point, you know, our uh, research at the Center for Entrepreneurship is that there have been, I don't know, 14% more uh, businesses registered in the past year. Now, you could say it's because people are upskilling or reinventing themselves or have been furloughed and set or something up, but still it's activity. And, you know, we all know yeah. that we need we need more scaling, fast scaling business to, to help really reignite the economy. And, you know, we're starting to see activity, which is a wonderful thing. Shan, um, just a couple of final little things I'd like to discuss with you. So I would like to just share that when you and I first met a long time ago on a spring morning in London at the Connaught Hotel in Mount Street, well, Carlos Place, at seven o'clock, you were wearing this gold, sparkly, sort of zip-up sweatshirt situation with a little hood. And you had, you know, the trainers and the whole thing going on, which, I mean, of course, I made a beeline to you as soon as I saw <laughs> you because you stood out. And you're your own person. And back to our point about being a sheep or an eagle, you know, how would you encourage young people today to do their thing? Because people do feel they have to conform. They have to do what other people do, you know, look the same, act the same, take the same path in life. What would you say to those people who are trying to work it all out? Yeah, I have a mantra, D, which is life's too short to blend in. Uh, so is, seriously. And you're right. You know, I, I have um, always had my own way and my own style. And the other thing I've always found is I've never had anything but an advantage to be a woman. And sometimes, you know, you get involved in those uh, those you know, female empowerment conversations and and. International Women's Day and all of those things. And sometimes I listen into those conversations and think, wow, I've never had this. I've never looked for it, but also I've never had it because I've been an entrepreneur. And, and you've been doing your thing, unemployable. right? Yeah, I've been doing my thing. And so I would encourage everybody to be your own person, have your own style. Don't think, definitely don't think. And I tell you where I've learned many times is you always think the big guys know better. Yeah. And then you realize, no, trust your own gut, because it is that naivety that is your power. Think of it as your superpower, because you don't know why not. Yeah. And if you don't speak the right language of banking or any of the, you know, any of the industries where you're trying to fundraise and all of that stuff, don't worry about it. That's their job. They don't know your language. And your language is the one of empowerment and of entrepreneurship and of creating something out of nothing. Because I, I think being an entrepreneur is the most creative thing in the world. Yeah. You make something out of nothing. When people talk to me about, oh, I'm not creative, I can't draw, I said, are you joking? You're an entrepreneur. That's the most creative thing in the world. And then what do you do? Not only do you create something out of nothing, but you employ other people. You give them opportunity. It's a really right. extraordinary path to tread. It isn't the easy one. My husband is an entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneur. I just thought, my poor sons, what are they going to do? They're probably going to go and work for the council because then at least you've got a job for life. But, <laughs> but no, both of them are very keen to be entrepreneurs. Right, which is fantastic. And they haven't been forced down that path because you can't, right? It's a kind of calling in some ways, right? Shan, you know, you mentor lots of young aspiring entrepreneurs. You have a lot of people calling you, asking for direction and advice. What's the best piece of advice that you've been given? I mean, I know you've been given loads, but what's the thing that really has stayed with you from your mother or from anybody, frankly, you've come across on the road and on the journey? Well, I'm going to give you one that sounds really boring, but it's so true. So when we when we launched Mamma Mia, we were the first 
startup that investing, the South African bank, we were the first startup they ever backed. I'm sure they'll never back another. I'm sure we were an absolute nightmare for them. But I used to go along to, I had to go and report at all the, the board meetings every month. And I'd go in and I'd be me and I'd be saying, we've got so much opportunity. We're working with the Royal College of Midwives. We've got this, we've got that. You know, Sephora have run, such and such has happened and all of these things. And they would say to me, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay, Sean, how does it convert to sales? And those words, how does it convert? They were like a knife in me every single month. How does it convert to sales? Uh, because it was like, oh, you just don't get it. You just don't get it, do you? But it's so true. How does it convert to sales? Oh, I know. It does. Because yeah. opportunity and words and ideas are easy. And execution and implementation is everything. And having people around you who can, who can take great ideas and drive them and make them into something and have the tenacity to make things happen out of nothing, mm-hmm. that is incredibly difficult. And those are the people that you want to surround yourself with. If you are the, ma- the person with the idea, you probably don't need loads more people with ideas. You need people who know how to make ideas happen. You need people with process. You need people who understand how does it convert to sales. Mm-hmm. Because here was me at the beginning of our 10-year journey at Mama Mio hearing those words, hating them. And then only six years later, I was the person saying those words to my team saying, right, but how does it convert to sales? And even now, the way that we run a plastic planet, everything is driven by measurables, by ROI. We have KPIs, you know, we are not some, we run it like a business, because I believe every penny that we have, we have to produce impact. How do we measure that impact? What is the return on that investment? And I think you can never lose sight of that because otherwise it just becomes a hobby. And the other thing is, you know, if you are doing something, you have to do it 100%. This whole thing of in your spare time, I've built up this multi-billion dollar Doesn't work. That's just a load of rubbish, frankly, in my view, you know. Yeah, it's all about application and it's you are choosing the hard road, but it's a brilliant road. This and that is incredible and super helpful. So, Sean, a couple of things to wrap. Um, I normally ask my guests a question or two. I have one question for you, and I have one other subject that I'd like to explore, which is you know something very important in your life. We've always talked about the mini break. So can we just touch briefly on that before I have one little question for you before we sadly wrap up for the afternoon? Yes. So I think when you work hard, you have to play hard. And for me, something that is so important is, of course, my family, absolutely important. Our holidays, sacrosanct. You know, we're lucky enough that, you know, we have a lot of sailing holidays through as my child, as my, um, my sons grew up. We had a lot of sailing holidays, which are amazing because you're basically on a floating plastic tub which means that there is no communication and so everybody has to really knuckle down and you have adventures and so it's they're extraordinary holidays so those have been very very important to me and then the other thing is my mini breaks and one of the hardest things through the pandemic for me is not having (laughs) my mini breaks with my (laughs) with my girlfriends I know know, people say what makes me happy is a chili mezcal margarita in my hand being on a on some Greek (laughs) island beach with my girlfriends dancing that is like that's my dream of perfect happiness and you have to have those little injections of fun otherwise you know this amazing lady said to me once people say life is short actually life is long life is really long and you have to make you have to fill it with extraordinary things because it does happen very quickly but it's long and mini breaks for me particularly you know popping across to the greek islands 
uh, Mykonos before it became ridiculously expensive, and now we'll have to find another one. You know, they're very, very important because that's how you you, you reboot. You know, you regenerate. Yeah, it's so important. So I say to everybody, just get a few of those in the bank, those little mini breaks that you can always look forward to, to pepper your diary. And then you can work very, very hard knowing that you've got that little mini break coming uh, up. Totally. So listen, Sean, my last question for you, this is probably quite a difficult one, knowing you as I do, but and knowing how invested at every level you are in what you're doing here today, what would you do? What would you be doing if you weren't doing this? What are those mad dreams of things that you, you, you know, you thought you might do in life or you'd like to do or, you know, don't hold wow. back. What would I be doing? <laughs> what would I be doing? Well, if I, if I wasn't doing this, you know, you know, when you try and do meditation, which I really rubbish at doing. And now I try and do quite an active meditation. And part of it is. So what is your dream? What is your goal? Where are you envisaging yourself? And I'm envisaging myself on a boat in the Greek islands where I could be there for six months of the year. Mm. And, and I've got an amazing team who can continue running a plastic planet and doing everything. And I can, I can work virtually. That would be my dream. But what, what I find interesting is you look back at my career and think all these different things that I've done. And what qualifies me to do what I'm doing right now, this least likely eco-warrior that you will ever meet. But I know that this is the thing that I've been built for. And all the experience that I've had to date, this is what I've been built for now. And I am one of those weird people, and I might have told you before, Dee, that I kind of like funerals. Because I love that moment where you're standing there and you're hearing the eulogies and you hear people talking about their loved one who's died. And you think, wow. How amazing. Look what they've done. How incredible. And then I always have that little moment of thinking, what will my boys say about me? Mm. What have I done? And the driver for me is always like, buck up, Sean, because you haven't done it yet. Because I, I don't feel that I've yet achieved the thing that, that I would love the people in my eulogy to say. And so that's always, a, I know it sounds crazy, but that's a big driver for me. Right. It's also a big driver of making sure I have, I have the right playlist on Spotify so that at my funeral not only do they have the right thing to say about me (laughs) but they've also got the right music (laughs) so I'm one of those unusual people I actually have a playlist on Spotify called six feet under so that my family know (laughs) that that don't even worry we've got the music sorted for the funeral because oh my god for the after party I mean I know it sounds horrendous but I totally agree you want to have it you want to go out with a bang don't you and a bit of a a dance up after the event well listen um you know thank you so much Shan for being with me being with everyone today you are a rock star and not just to me. I really mean it. And um, I can't wait to see you very, very soon for a bit of dancing on the tables with the cocktails. Oh, After so coffee needed. earlier in the day, of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's so neat. Well, thank you, Dean. Thank you for this opportunity. And for anybody who's listening, get out there and go for it. Thank you. I think, I think one thing that we've really, we really underestimate, mm. you know, here we are, two unreasonable women who decided why don't we have a bit more choice four years ago and now we're doing what we're doing Mm. and it just shows me I keep having to pinch myself and think each and every one of us we have so much more power than we think. I couldn't agree more so listen on that note I will see you very soon and I can't wait for more and um, you know we are with you on this incredible adventure that you're running on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Double Espresso with D, with me, D Sterling. 
If you enjoyed it, I'd love you to review and subscribe to the podcast so we can share these amazing stories with others. I'd also love to connect with you. So feel free to contact me via Instagram DM at D double espresso. Until the next time, au revoir.